Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to... We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. And hello, Las Vegas and everyone listening all across the Fruited Plains around the world on the 405media.com. Great to have all of you with us today. Thanks for being here. Be sure to join us for church tonight at 7 p.m., 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard. All right, so the news of the day. Dive right in. Kansas State Treasurer Ron Estes held off a stronger than expected challenge from Democratic Civil Rights Attorney James Thompson last night as the GOP won the first special congressional election since President Trump's inauguration. Uh, new CIA Director Mike Pompeo had vacated that seat. He was a three-term representative from Kansas's fourth uh, district. So the special election was held to fill his seat. Uh, Estes won with 53% of the vote to 46% for Thomas. And that sounds like a pretty big margin until you realize that the Republicans' margin of victory was just over 8,000 votes. Now... Contrast that to the fact that Pompeo won re-election in November by 31 percentage points and 85,000 votes. And that, that paints a little bit of a different picture. So while many are hailing this as a victory and vindication of, of Trump's presidency, I, I would be more cautious when you look at the actual numbers and the difference between what... Uh, what what Estes won by and what Pompeo won by just in November, um, we may have to we may have to be looking at some seats that should that we would think would be uh, safe for Republicans and and put a little more effort into those next year than we might be expecting. But we'll see a lot 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 can happen in a year uh, politically. Also interesting to note, however, is that this guy that ran as a Democrat, James Thompson. Up until about a year ago, uh, he was a Republican. So Democrats picked a a converted Republican, if you will, and ran him uh, trying to win that seat. So that may have, I'm sure, factored into some degree. But uh, still very interesting to me that it was that that close. Also... Judge Gorsuch, it is confirmed. Justice, now Justice Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch has been sworn in to the Supreme Court. This is huge news. And for many conservatives, this justifies their vote for Donald Trump as president and soothes their consciences. Why? Well, because hopefully Gorsuch is going to have an immediate lasting effect on the Supreme Court and subsequently on our nation as a whole in a positive way. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, the Fox News actually had a really good piece about this, why Justice Gorsuch will have an immediate and big impact on the Supreme Court. Relentless, harsh, and wholly unmerited, such were the attacks against Judge Neil Gorsuch. Yet Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell held firm to his promise to hold a full Senate vote on the judge's nomination. And we have, once again, as of April 10th, so on Monday, as of Monday, we have once again... Um, 
a full complement of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. Hopefully Gorsuch's confirmation means that the court once again has the crucial fifth vote needed to sustain the Constitution as written and to protect fundamental rights like religious freedom, free speech, and the right to bear arms. Once he is sworn in, Justice Gorsuch will arrive at the court just in time to hear the April 19th oral arguments in Trinity Lutheran Church versus Pauley. It is a case of stark, blatant religious discrimination by the government. The state of Missouri provides grants to help nonprofit organizations resurface their playgrounds with rubber from recycled tires. The goal is to provide safer play areas for kids. But Missouri denied a grant to the licensed preschool and daycare center at Trinity Lutheran solely because it is a church. Missouri said the grant would violate separation of church and state. In reality, it violated prior Supreme Court precedent. Given the hostility to religious freedom expressed in prior decisions like Burnwell versus Hobby Lobby, uh, the contraceptive mandate case, and uh, Town of Greece versus Galloway, which was the town council opening prayer case, by the four liberal justices on the court, Gorsuch is needed in the Trinity Lutheran case to prevent an injustice from occurring. Excluding churches from an otherwise neutral and secular government aid program clearly violates the First Amendment. Gorsuch may also make a difference in the court's decisions about which of the pending petitions it will accept for appeal. Each term, the court accepts only a little over 70 of the roughly 7,000 petitions it receives. It will be helpful, therefore, to have another justice who understands the importance of constitutional issues and will vote to accept the most important cases for review. Among the petitions currently pending is Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, an important case about an individual's right to not be forced by the government to act in violation of his or her religious beliefs. Another petition is Husted versus A. Philip Randolph Institute. In this case, the sixth Circuit Court of Appeals issued an erroneous decision misinterpreting federal law to prevent the state of Ohio from cleaning up its voter registration list. This is an especially important case for improving election integrity and one which Justice Gorsuch may be inclined to take up. Uh, And then it goes on, the article talks about a variety of cases that Justice Gorsuch could be facing very soon and that it could make a a huge difference on and we will see uh we'll see what happens but i i would think just looking at him he gives us every reason to believe that he will uphold the constitution that he will enforce the bill of rights uh and that he will help to rein in a an out of control uh government bureaucracy that has expanded its power beyond its legal authority but that remains to be seen he hasn't actually sat in the supreme court yet we'll 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 see what happens hopefully hopefully good things so that is big big news also big news out of washington dc this is from the uh from uh the daily wire ben carson found 500 billion dollars billion with a b as in bumblebee 500 billion dollars in errors during an audit of president obama's housing and urban development branch President Trump picked Carson to head the Department of Housing and Urban Development, whose budget grew by leaps and bounds under then-President Barack Obama. In one of his first acts as HUD Secretary, HUD is short for Housing and Urban Development, Carson ordered an audit of the agency. What he found was staggering. $520 billion in bookkeeping errors. That is unbelievable. How do you make $520 in bookkeeping errors? Not money was sent to the wrong places. No, bookkeeping errors. That's unreal. 
The total amount of errors corrected in HUD's notes and consolidated financial statements were $516.4 billion and $3.4 billion, respectively, the auditors wrote. But there were plenty of other problems, too. There were several other unresolved audit matters which restricted our ability to obtain sufficient appropriate evidence to express an opinion. These unresolved audit matters relate to, one, the Office of General Counsel's refusal to sign the management representation letter, two, HUD's improper use of cumulative and first-in, first-out budgetary accounting methods, of dispersing community planning and development program funds. Three, the $4.2 billion in non-pooled loan assets from Ginnie Mae's standalone financial statements that we could not audit due to inadequate support. Four, the improper accounting for certain HUD assets and liabilities. And five, material differences between HUD sub-ledger and general ledger accounts. This audit report contains 11 material weaknesses, seven significant deficiencies, and five instances of non-compliance with applicable laws and regulations. The same problems were detailed for each of the last three audits, and the auditors say the continued problems were, quote, due to an inability to establish compliant control environment, implement adequate financial accounting systems, retain key financial staff, and identify appropriate accounting principles and policies. So essentially, these independent auditors were like, yeah, this is completely messed up. These people knew nothing about what they were doing. <laughs> they, used just, they just used really polite, politically correct words. They didn't have appropriate accounting principles and policies. Do you think that would work? Like if I, if I, you know, say I owed the IRS $500 billion and I just was like, well, it was just an, it was an accounting error because I failed to identify appropriate accounting principles and policies. No, that would not work. And by the way, when it says HUD lost $500 billion, you know, just kind of the books were wrong. That $500 billion wasn't like printed on a machine and then handed to them. No, that's taxpayer dollars. That's money that you worked for, that you earned. That then President Obama's HUD just, you know, bookkeeping errors. So, look for Ben Carson to get out his scalpel. Scalpel? Scalpel. I always can never say that word. And start uh, operating over at Housing and Urban Development because there's clearly uh, a lot of work to be done there. All right, let's uh, let's take a break. When we get back, I'm going to have my main segment for this show. It's going to be a long one. Uh, it's going to be about isolationism. And uh, it's something I've been wanting to talk about for a few days now, just haven't been able to get around to it. <laughs> and if you have ever listened to Ray Comfort, you know why I haven't been able to get around to it. So um, we're going to go to King of the World from Natalie Grant. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to KVXL 11.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas. And welcome back. You're listening to The Fertile Show on KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas. All right, warning. Warning. This is going to be a long segment right now <laughs> because I have a very... Um, uh, in-depth, if you will, topic that I want to cover. And uh, it's one that I've been wanting to talk about for uh, about a week now. But because it's such a, a long, drawn-out topic, I've, I had to wait for the perfect timing. And now is that time. So if you are waiting for the opportune moment, this is it. 
All right, so let's talk about isolationism. You ready? This is something that has come back into the forefront of American politics and American conversation recently. We go from Trump's America First slogan to its recent bombing of Syria and everything in between. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with the really simple aspect of this, and then we're going to move into some of the more complex history of isolationism. Are you ready? Okay. So basically... This all started because you had isolationists and you had internationalists. These two groups still exist today. Hardcore isolationists are those who would say, look, America is our home. And remember, I'm just putting this in very basic, simple terms. Okay, It's more complicated than this, but I'm just trying to boil it down here. So you have isolationists who say America is our home. America is who we take care of. Let the rest of the world take care of itself. It's not our concern. It's not our war. It's not our business, period. No exceptions. That's a hardcore isolationist. Then you have hardcore internationalists who say that everything that happens in the entire world is our business as the United States, and we have a responsibility to every person on the planet for everything that we do, whether that be our, our, our emissions and global warming or in whatever is the next war that comes along. It is our fault. It is our business to be involved. Now, personally... I think that there are very few people today that fall into the category of either hardcore isolationism or hardcore internationalism. I just don't think that there are. Most individuals tend to lean toward one side or the other, but they make exceptions. Because there are arguments on both sides that can be made. So we've got, we've got children being kidnapped and brutally raped and murdered by Boko Haram in Africa. Is it our job to go and help them? And if we don't, will anyone else? What about the innocent Syrians whose own government is using chemical weapons against them? Is it our job to go and help them? And if we don't, will anyone else? But then comes the most troubling question of all. And this is where the chips fall, if you will. And this is why I don't believe that most people are actually hardcore isolationists or hardcore internationalists, because this is, the, this is the crux of the matter. If it is our job to help, how do we determine who we help and when we help them? And that is the true heart of this debate. Because again, most people believe that there is a point where we are responsible to intervene in what's happening in the world. The debate lies in at what point do we intervene and how do we determine who we help? Because there are a lot of people in the world who can use our help. And the United States, hey, we are helping so many countries every day. We literally send tens of billions, I believe in 2016 it was something like $35 billion dollars. 35 billion. Now, granted, that is majorly dwarfed by the 500 billion that HUD uh, messed up in its bookkeeping. But nevertheless, we spend 30 billion dollars on foreign aid. You know what that's equivalent to? Essentially, 317,000 elementary school teacher salary for one year. It's equivalent to 2.5. 5 million veterans receiving VA medical care for one year. 
It's equivalent to over a million students receiving Pell Grants of $5,815 for four years each. Or 17 million households having solar electricity for one year. It's equivalent to a lot of things. And you look at those numbers and you think, okay, is that the best use of our money? And you have people like Rand Paul, who I greatly admire, though we disagree on some things, who say, look, we have needs here at home that we aren't taking care of, and we should be taking care of our own problems first. How can we be funding the world when we have trillions of dollars in debt and deficit at home? And there's a point to be made there. We need to get our own financial house in order. So do we stop all foreign aid in an attempt to do that? We could. But frankly, $30 billion is a mere drop in the bucket of what we need. And things like what Ben Carson is doing, finding that $500 billion at HUD, that's going to have a much larger impact than if we were to adjust the $30 billion in aid that we sent out. And where does that aid money go? This is, this is very interesting to me. So when it comes to foreign aid money, you have planned aid, what we call planned aid. Uh, planned aid is basically appropriations and requests for funding to be spent over specified amount of time. So like over one to two years. Essentially, this is what we plan on giving to this country in the next one to two years. Um, then, then there's obligated aid, which uh, I'm not going to try and explain that right now. But essentially, these are, these are things that we are definitely going to be making. Um, but we haven't necessarily made yet. Then you have dispersed aid, which is uh, what we've actually sent to this country, okay? So there's three different levels of aid. Now, in planned aid, Israel is by far the country that we are planning to send the most aid to. Israel is on the books for $3.1 billion. But if you look at what we've actually dispersed, our current dispersed aid, I believe this, this is either for 2016 or for this year, I'm sorry, I'm not sure, um, is $1.3 million. Now, oh, I'm sorry, this is for 2016. So this was for 2016. So for 2016, our planned aid was $3.1 billion. What we actually sent to Israel, $1.3 million. Then, second largest country that we send aid to is Jordan. Our planned aid for Jordan, $1.48 billion. So basically half of what Israel gets. What we actually sent to Jordan, $393 million in dispersed aid. You're going to catch on to a trend here. 2016, third largest country where we had planned to send aid, Egypt, $1.5 billion. What we actually sent them? $53.8 million. Fourth country, Afghanistan. Planned aid, $1.3 billion. What we actually dispersed to them, $665 million. Then comes Pakistan. We planned to spend $945 million. We sent them $383 million. And then the numbers start to drop off from there. But what I find interesting is you remember what that Israel was at the top of our list that we plan to spend them send them 3.1 million billion dollars rather more than twice as much as any other country that we send foreign aid to but what was actually dispersed to them 1.3 million in 2016 what was dispersed to Jordan 
393 million. What was dispersed to Egypt? 53.8 million. And what was dispersed to Afghanistan? 665 million. What was dispersed to Pakistan? 383 million. To Israel? 1.3 million. So when leftists tell you that we send too much money to Israel, that might be a good thing for you to know. Because while they are in the budget for the most, they have by no means gotten the most in foreign aid from the United States recently. So there's the financial aspect of it. Then you also have isolationists saying, why are we sending our young people to die fighting a war that that country's own citizens won't fight? That's a really good question. And it's worth considering. That's worth the conversation, don't you think? So where did this whole thing begin? Where did this concept of isolationism, of of we just take care of our own and that's it. Where did that come from? And then, and then where did this, this view of that we are responsible to the entire world for all the things that have ever happened, where did that come from? And believe it or not, it came with President Woodrow Wilson, largely. Ironically, Wilson was elected as the man who kept us from war. That was one of the campaign slogans, the man who kept us from war. And within second or yeah, second, within seventy days of his second inauguration, that completely flipped. He changed to a wartime president. In his second inaugural address, Wilson said this. It is in uh uh Well, he talks about injuries that that we have received. He said, It is in this spirit and with this thought that we have grown more and more aware, more and more certain that the part we wish to play was the part of those who mean to vindicate and fortify peace. We have been obliged to arm ourselves to make good our claim to a certain minimum of right and freedom of action. We stand firm in armed neutrality since it seems that in no other way can we demonstrate what it is we insist upon and cannot forget. We may even be drawn on by circumstances, not by our own purpose or desire, to a more active assertion or excuse me assertion of our rights as we see them and a more immediate association with the great struggle itself he is of course talking about what was about to become world war one which was happening in europe but nothing will alter our thought or our purpose they are too clear to be obscured they are too deeply rooted in the principles of our national life to be altered we desire neither conquest nor advantage we wish nothing that can be had only at the cost of another people we always professed unselfish purpose and we covet the opportunity to prove our professions are sincere There are many things still to be done at home to clarify our own politics and add new vitality to the industrial processes of our own life, and we shall do them as time and opportunity serve. But we realize that the greatest things that remain to be done must be done with the whole world for a stage and in cooperation with the wide and universal forces of mankind, and we are making our spirits ready for those things. We are provincials no longer. The tragic events of the 30 months of vital turmoil through which we have just passed have made us citizens of the world. There can be no turning back. Our own fortunes as a nation are involved, whether we would have it so or not. 
and yet we are not the less Americans on that account. We shall be the more American if we but remain true to the principles in which we have been bred. They are not the principles of a province or of a single continent. We have known and boasted all along that they were the principles of a liberated mankind. These, therefore, are the things that we stand for, whether in war or in peace, that all nations are equally interested in the peace of the world and in the political stability of free peoples, and equally responsible for their maintenance. That's... That's key. Get this now. That the essential principle of peace is the actual equality of nations in all matters of right or privilege. That peace cannot securely or justly rest upon an armed balance of power. That governments derive all their just powers from the consent of the governed. And that no other power should should be supported by the common thought, purpose, or power of the family of nations. That the sea should be equally free and safe for the use of all peoples under rules set up by common agreement and consent. And that, so far as practicable, they should be accessible to all upon equal terms. That national armaments should be limited to the necessities of national order and domestic safety, that the community of interest and of power upon which peace must henceforth depend imposes upon each nation the duty of seeing to it that all influences proceeding from its own citizens meant to encourage or assist revolution in other states should be sternly and effectually suppressed and prevented. Uh, I need not argue these principles to you, my fellow countrymen. They are your own part and parcel of your own thinking and of your own motives in affairs. They spring up native amongst us. Upon this is a platform of purpose and of action. We can stand together. And it is imperative that we should stand together. We are being forged into a new unity amidst the fires that now blaze throughout the world. In their ardent heat we shall, in God's providence, let us hope, be purged of fraction and division, purified of the errant humors of party and of private interest, and shall stand forth in the days to come with a new dignity of national pride and spirit. Let each man see to it that the dedication is in his own heart, the high purpose of the nation in his own mind, ruler of his own will and desires. So that was his second inaugural address. You have the conflict in Europe is escalating. Wilson is saying, on one hand, uh, national pride. On one hand, America first. On one hand, this is... This is what America is. But you can see in his inaugural address where he is starting to shift, that he's moving towards internationalism, and that this shift would eventually lead to the forming of the League of Nations and Wilson's drive uh, for, for world political stability, which he talks about in this inaugural address of, of having uh, essential principles of peace being enforced throughout the world. And that's where this is with with Wilson prior to World War One, and then leading into World War One. This is where we begin to see uh, the shift, if you will. So again, seventy days into this, after Wilson swore, gets sworn in for the second time, the United States enters World War One, and to this day, it is debated whether or not Wilson's involving the United States in the First World War actually helped give way to the Second World War. You might say, well, what, what are you talking about? Well, the Cato Institute has, a, has an excellent and very lengthy uh, piece that explains all of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and go through just bits and pieces of this um, quickly. It's a guy named Jim Powell uh, wrote this for them. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's the author of FDR's Folly, Wilson's War, Bully Boy, Great Emancipations, and other books. Dude writes a lot of history. Um, but so he wrote this piece on Woodrow Wilson's great mistake. 
Um, and he says, for a long time, Americans have been branded as isolationists, guilty of appeasement when they question the wisdom of starting or entering another foreign war. The terms isolationist and appeasement are used to link today's non-interventionists to the political leaders who, during the 1930s, did nothing to stop Hitler early on when that might have been easy. Ever since then, starting or entering wars has been justified by claiming that the present situation uh, is similar to the threat from Nazi Germany and requires first. Force, rather. The first problem with such a scenario is that Hitler's rise to power owed much to a prior war, World War I, which was supposed to end war. Precisely because France and Britain entered World War I and were devastated, which none of the politi- its political leaders seemed to have anticipated, people in those countries lacked the will for another war. They had also been lied to repeatedly by their political leaders, and they weren't interested in going through that again. As far as Americans were concerned, the greed and hypocrisy of World War I belligerents discredited the idea of doing good by going to war, which is why Americans wanted nothing to do with another foreign war. It was because pro-war people lost their credibility during World War I that no one responded when alarms were sounded about Hitler during the 1930s, which is very interesting. World War I was probably history's worst catastrophe, and U.S. President Woodrow Wilson was substantially responsible for unintended consequences of the war that played out in Germany and Russia, contributing to the rise of totalitarian regimes regimes and another world war. American isolationism developed as a sensible reaction to his policies. After Germany's initial advances into the Low Countries and France, the adversaries in World War I dug trenches and seldom advanced or retreated much from those lines. German soldiers were generally outnumbered on the Western Front, but the Germans had smarter generals and more guns. The British Navy enforced an effective blockade that made it difficult for the Germans to obtain many vital supplies, including food. Germany responded by building a submarine fleet, but it didn't give them a way to invade Britain or the United States. By 1918, the war had been stalemated for more than three years, neither side able to force vindictive terms on the other. Uh, and, and this piece goes on, and it's really incredibly interesting. I, if you want to know more about this, I'd encourage you to read it. Uh, but essentially what, uh, what Jim Powell goes on to talk about is how if the United States had remained neutral in this situation, it is likely that Germany would have gained control of, of probably Belgium um, and possibly uh, some of, of France. Instead, uh, the United States gets involved. Uh, President Wilson thought that he would be able to uh, moderate, if you will, the terms of peace and post-war negotiations. But that turned out to not really, that, 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 that didn't work out. So then what you happen, what you have happen is you have the French prime minister at the time, Jorge Clemahu, was who he's determined, he's going to avenge Germany's humiliating defeat from their war uh, uh, defeat of the French people rather from the war of 1870 and since World War I took place on French soil and the French suffered 6 million casualties this guy made sure that the, the, the treaty they signed obligated Germany to pay huge reparations and surrender assets including coal, trucks, guns, ships, private property, uh, the German government's property. Essentially, they just they just destroyed Germany's infrastructure and left Germany crippled. Now, 
So you take these vindictive surrender terms, which some will argue were made possible by America's entry into the war, and this, in Germany, triggered a dangerous nationalist reaction. So Germany, (laughs) this quote-unquote treaty, this peace terms, just, just completely cripples Germany. The German people are broken, and from that brokenness... In comes this insignificant corporal named Adolf Hitler who's able to recruit several thousand Nazis. Then, as the Allies continue to demand reparations for World War I, Germans now have incentive to inflate their currency and pay the Allies off with worthless uh, German marks. The runaway inflation continues to wipe out Germany's economy and its middle class is essentially completely gone. And from that, Hitler is able to recruit tens of thousands of more Nazis by appealing to, to the, the, the bitterness that had taken hold of them. And these people are what he called starving billionaires. They had billions of dollars, if you will, in paper marks, but with their billions of paper marks, they couldn't afford a loaf of bread. So there's this argument that if the United States had stayed out of World War I and instead of a negotiated settlement between Germany and France, there was a German victory on the Western Front, what would have happened, most likely, is that it would have acquired probably Belgium, some French territory, but they wouldn't have been able to enjoy their victory for long because Britain would have retained its independence and probably continued their hunger blockade against Germany. And Germany would have become bogged down in these conflicts uh, in its other, on the other side with Russia. And Germany probably would have eventually just stopped trying to, to fight because it, the, they've, gained, uh, they've gained Belgium, they've gained France. They weren't advancing anyway, so they're just stuck there. Britain's going to continue to starve them. They're going to get caught up with Russia. And so Germany would have would have been would have been done. They would have been like, all right, enough is enough. But instead, the United States enters the war, uh, the war to end all wars, which obviously it didn't. Germany ends up surrendering. Their people get just completely uh, demoralized. And from that demoralized state, you have the rise of Hitler, World War II, and the Holocaust. And then we could talk about the Bolshevik coup in Russia that also uh, resulted. But I don't, I don't have time to get into that. But there's, there were a lot of things that happened as a result of the United States entering World War I that weren't necessarily good things. And so history begs the question, did the United States intervention in World War I in some way lead to World War II? I can't answer that question. I can I can explain to you some of the historical ramifications of the United States entering World War One, but this is where uh, a, a lot of that isolationism. Uh, this is where this came from. So I'm just trying to give you the history of where this, what led to this thi- this this thinking. And what we can unquestionably learn from any war, regardless of our reason for entering it, is that war always has unforeseen consequences. 
always has unforeseen consequences. So you have you have all this happen with World War One. Then you get to the late 1930s, and World War One is over. Uh, Americans are not knowing why we even got involved. You have the Nazi Party rising in Germany. You have what appears to be another uh, world war brewing under the surface, and tensions in Europe are increasing again. And in the late 1930s, most Americans were like, no way. They want to stay out of war in Europe. They want nothing to do with it. And so in the fall of 1939, there were some students from Yale University who formed the America First Committee. Members included future Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, future Yale President Kingman Brewster, future Peace Corps Director Sergeant Shriver, and future President Gerald Ford. The committee's president uh, was the retired General Robert Wood, the chairman of Sears and Roebuck, the nation's leading retailer. And supporters of the American First Movement included Henry Ford, Colonel Robert McCormick, publisher of the Chicago Tribune, Minnesota Meatpacker Jay Hormel, and Sterling Morton, president of Morton Salt. The movement's most prominent speaker was a guy named Charles Lindenberg who became America's biggest hero when he flew a plane solo across the Atlantic in 1927. He argued that German victory in World War II was inevitable and that U.S. intervention would pointlessly antagonize the victors. It had hundreds of chapters and thousands of members, and America First was the largest anti-war group in U.S. history. But as the war went on, as news of the atrocities in Germany began coming our way, public opinion slowly swung in the United States against isolationism. And the movement itself was crippled, the America First movement was crippled by a speech that Lindenberg himself gave on September 11, 1941. And in that speech, he complained about American Jews' support for intervention, saying, quote, Their greatest danger to this country lies in their large ownership and influence in our motion pictures, our press, our radio, and our government. Hard to believe someone would say that, isn't it? Hard to believe that someone so revered in American history would say that. Well, then you have the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, that moment, you can, you can look at American history and you can see uh, the isolationism shift to internationalism with World War I, World War I leaving everyone delusioned, and this huge shift in American culture to back to isolationism and, uh, and the America First movement. Then Pearl Harbor comes and all of a sudden you have the pendulum swing the other way. Three days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the America First Committee board voted to disband, saying, quote, We are at war. The primary objective is not difficult to state. It can be completely defined in one word, victory. In the post-war era, we had the establishment of the United Nations and NATO. And with that, the America First movement pretty much just dissipated. And that might, you might say, well, I've heard this before. Yeah, you have. Donald Trump used America First as his slogan throughout his campaign. I would argue that he used it a little bit differently 
but that's where the slogan originated. It originated with a group of people who wanted nothing to do with the evil happening in the world until that evil showed up on our own doorstep. And suddenly, America First took on a whole new evening, er, meaning. And you might be saying, well, that's all very interesting as far as a historical lesson, but then what is the answer? What do we do when a Syrian dictator uses chemical weapons on innocent men, women, and children? Why do we send millions and potentially billions of dollars to countries like Israel when that money could be invested here at home? Should we be involved around the world? Or should we simply let the world take care of its own while we take care of our own? And, you know, if they come, if they bring the fight to us, then we'll fight back. Is that the answer? And what's the, what, what's the answer? Well, my conclusion is this. Do we believe what the Declaration of Independence says? Matthew, Matthew Spaulding, he wrote an absolutely incredible piece on the founders and foreign policy for the Heritage Foundation. I'll post a link uh, to his article on my Twitter and Facebook pages at The Fertile so you can go and read the whole thing for yourself if you want a really, really in-depth and well-thought-out argument. Uh, this is the one that I would recommend for you. And I'd like to read for you his conclusion. Because it perfectly wraps up my personal position on this, on this issue, and I think that it is where most reasonable Americans would end up. Again, this is Matthew Spaulding, Founders in Foreign Policy from the Heritage Foundation. The Declaration of Independence holds that all men, not just Americans, are endowed with the right to liberty. That liberty is an aspect of human nature everywhere of human nature everywhere is central to understanding America's first principles. This is why the promotion of freedom in the world has been and should always be a predominant theme of American foreign policy. Washington put it this way in his first inaugural address. Quote, the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps as finally, staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. The question then is not whether, but how to advance liberty. And this is a preeminent question of prudence and statecraft relating principles and practice. The founders framed the question with three important caveats. First, they understood that America, though dedicated to a universal principle, is a particular nation. The United States must always keep in mind its own sovereign obligations and be careful not to risk its capacity to perform the vital task of defending itself, its people, and its interest. Second, the founders understood that America acted within the possibilities of the real world, and in a world of limited resources, the nation must not forget its limits. Moreover, no matter how passionate we are to expand free government, it is not in our hands to dictate the final outcome. Making the right to liberty into an enduring principle of a nation's political order can be fully accomplished only by the people of that nation. Third, and most important, the founders were acutely aware of the difficulties involved in advancing the cause of liberty. They based their hopes, as James Madison wrote in Federalist 39, on, quote, that honorable determination which animates every votary of freedom to rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government, unquote. Liberty is not just about holding an election now and again. It is also about establishing stable constitutional government and the rule of law, upholding majority rule, and securing civil and religious liberty. There is a great distance between the natural right to liberty and the capacity of particular peoples and nations for self-government. 
Although every human being has a desire to be free, by no means are all willing to fight and perhaps die for it or to acknowledge the political forms necessary to establish and preserve it for themselves or for others. The founder's own experience, breaking with a foreign power or a sovereign power, fighting a war for independence, creating constitutional forms and institutions, building on extensive experience, experience in self-government and deep constitutional traditions inherited from their mother country, proves the case. This is not to say that the founders thought establishing Republican governments was unlikely or impossible, or that they were opposed in all cases to intervention on behalf of liberty in the Republican cause. That would make a mockery of their own call for foreign support in the Declaration of Independence. The French Revolution is an instructive example. Americans were optimistic about the influence that their principles would have on the cause of liberty elsewhere, and initially welcomed the possibility of an American-inspired revolution in France that would replace its monarchy with a constitutional republic like their own. But as events developed, they were increasingly concerned about the disorder and violence that seemed to stem from deliberate policies of the revolutionary French leadership. Although there was great debate over how to interpret these events, Hamilton saw violent social upheaval where Jefferson saw the chaotic advance of liberty, the Washington administration, which by the way included both Hamilton and Jefferson, ultimately concluded that the French Revolution threatened to spread violence throughout Europe, drawing other nations, perhaps including America, into a worldwide war. While there was disagreement about implementing the policy, there was wide agreement that the United States should stay out of the conflict. Alexander Hamilton made an important distinction between a nation that had, quote, come to a resolution to throw off a yoke under which it may have groaned and is in the act of liberating itself, quote, on the one hand, and the other, the policy of the French Revolution, which held out, quote, a general invitation to insurrection and revolution in all countries and had declared that it would treat as enemies the people who, refusing or renouncing liberty and equality, are desirous of preserving their prince and privileged castes. Unquote. In the former case, it would be justifiable and meritorious for another nation to offer assistance, as France had supported the American cause. But the latter situation amounted to a declaration of war against all opponents and all nations. Likewise, Washington made important distinctions when it came to the French Revolution. He stirringly proclaimed to the French minister in 1796 that, quote, My anxious recollections, my sympathetic feelings, and my best wishes are irresistibly excited. Whensoever in any country I see an oppressed nation unfurl the banners of freedom, unquote. But in praising the cause of freedom in France, Washington made explicit the grounds on which Americans would evaluate the true merits of the French Revolution. He said, I rejoice that liberty now finds an asylum in the bosom of a regularly organized government, a government which being formed to secure the happiness of the French people corresponds with the ardent wishes of my heart while it gratifies the pride of every citizen of the United States by its resemblance to their own. See, it is one thing to unfurl the banners of freedom, but quite another to actually establish constitutional government. The founders fervently welcomed opportunities to promote liberty in the world, but they judged those opportunities in light of America's legitimate national interests and obligations and recognized that the success of liberty ultimately required stable institutions of constitutional government, what today we often refer to broadly as liberal democracy. Likewise, while it is important to understand the universal and even revolutionary implications of our principles, as a nation with sovereign responsibilities, it is not our objective or our responsibility to intervene in every case when our principles are invoked or to impose liberal democratic forms on the rest of the world. 
When opportunities for advancing liberty arise, the United States is entitled, even obligated, to make prudent distinctions about commitments, such as cost, time, and manpower, relative to our interests and sovereign responsibilities, including the larger cause of liberal democracy. The principal duty this nation has toward the world is to remain strong and independent so that the United States can maintain the freedom to advance and, when necessary, defend freedom in the world. The founders sought to advance liberty not directly by imperial expansion or by using force to change under other nations, but indirectly, even secondarily to our primary primary obligations and interests as a nation. America should promote and assist democracies and even prevent others from intervening with or imposing non-democratic governments implied in the Monroe Doctrine doctrine when the United States agreed not to intervene in Europe in exchange for Europe's not establishing European-backed monarchies uh, in South America. Otherwise, with strong encouragement and general support for the spread of liberal democracy, it should let particular peoples determine their own fate. This approach reflects our historical understanding of how best to uphold and vindicate the universal principle of human liberty. This is the meaning of John Quincy Adams' famous speech delivered to Congress on July 4, 1821. The son of President John Adams, he was at the time Secretary of State and would help author the Monroe Doctrine and would be President of the United States in less than four years' time. The address is a wonderful statement of American principles in history focusing on America and the world. Consider this key passage. Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will be her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. She will recommend the general cause by the countenance of her voice and the sympathy of her example. She well knows that by once enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would involve herself beyond the powers uh, of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual variance, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. The fundamental maxims of her policy would be insensibly change from liberty to force. America's glory is not dominion, but liberty, Adams concluded. Her march is the march of the mind. She has a spear and a shield, but the motto upon her shield is freedom, independence, peace. This has been her declaration. This has been, as far as her necessary intercourse with the rest of mankind would permit, her practice. America is an empire, but not of servitude or of mastery. It is, as Jefferson once said, it is an empire of liberty. The founders believed that whatever temporary advantages might be lost by following a foreign policy of interest guided by justice would be richly repaid over the course of time. The practices of other nations following America's example in foreign as well as domestic affairs would lead to a structure of international relations that might achieve America's interests in security and prosperity more surely than one in which nations act unjustly in an international system marked by the pursuit of narrow self-interest. America could provide for its security and realize its interests, in short, command its own fortunes better in a peaceful and prosperous world than in a world torn by constant strife. To be sure, the founders did not think that a peaceful and prosperous world was around the corner any more than they believed that self-government would soon become the norm. America would do its part in leading by example in both foreign and domestic affairs. The great American experiment would further ennoble the American character, giving moral content to American interests in relations to other nations and peoples. 
The founders sought to create an independent, self-sufficient American political community in the form of a large commercial republic able to control its destiny through a foreign policy that pursued American interests guided by justice. Both the American political community and the national character depended on establishing in the mind of the people the proper relationship and distinction between America and other nations and peoples. Above all, the American character was to be Republican. America would be founded and sustained not merely for narrow interests of a particular people in a particular place, but for the sake of that people's commitment to achieving civil and religious liberty for all under the rule of law. America's founders sought to define a national good that transcended local interests and prejudice. The national good included the common benefits of self-defense and prosperity that all Americans would realize by participating in a large commercial nation able to hold its own in an often hostile world. But it was only with the constitutional rule of law that the higher purpose or true national interest of America could be realized. That purpose was to demonstrate to all mankind the feasibility of self-government and the suitability of justice as the proper and sustainable ground for relations among nations and peoples. The honor of striving for domestic and international justice would give moral purpose to the American character. The United States would support, defend, and advance the cause of freedom everywhere. It would be a refuge for the sober, industrious, and virtuous of the world, as well as for victims of persecution. By sympathy and appropriate action, Americans would show themselves to be the true friends of humanity. Now again, that's Matthew Spaulding's uh, conclusion to his piece, Fa The Founders and Foreign Policy, which he wrote for the Heritage Foundation. It's incredibly lengthy and so, so good. If you are, are, are thinking through this issue of isolationism, internationalism, you know, why, why are we getting involved in Syria? Why don't we get involved in other areas of the world? Why do we send money overseas? Why do we do all these things? It's because neither is correct. This is the conclusion that I've come to. Hardcore isolationism is not the answer. Hardcore internationalism is not the answer. The answer is in our own Declaration of Independence, that all men, not just Americans, are endowed with a right to liberty. Liberty is an aspect of human nature everywhere and America's foundational principle. And that's why the promotion of freedom around the world has and always should be a predominant theme of American foreign policy. But, as Spalding points out, we cannot get involved in every conflict. It wouldn't work. There, there, we would be everywhere at all times. We can't be the world's police officers. But that does not mean that when the opportunity to advance liberty and to support a, 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 a Republican form of government presents itself, that we have not only the opportunity, but also the obligation to assist the cause of liberty throughout the world. But that in doing so, we must first always count the cost. That it should never be something that is entered into lightly. Whether that be in matter of war or in financial support. Everyone always thinks of, of, of foreign intervention as being something where we're sending people with, with machine guns. But that's not... We, we spend so much money on foreign aid, period. We need to count the cost not only when it comes to going to war, but when it comes to foreign aid as well. So the answer, whether isolationism or internationalism is correct, the answer, I believe, is neither. No, the answer is somewhere in the middle. The answer is in finding and doing what is in the best interests 
of our country because that is what our government is supposed to do. It is It has a responsibility to perfect, protect and defend its citizens and to advance our cause, not through conquest or, or globalization, no, but to help the cause, our cause, which is freedom and our endowed right of liberty, which God has given to us to advance that for people around the world. So I know that was really long. I know that was all. <laughs> you were like, I didn't know I was going to get a history lesson today. Well, I'm not going to apologize because you just did. And if you missed the beginning, uh, you missed out on a lot. We talked about Woodrow Wilson. We talked about World War One. We went all over the place, and I had fun. Hope you enjoyed it. If you missed out on the beginning, uh, you can go and catch the podcast. It'll be up on iTunes and SoundCloud later today. All about isolationism, where it came from, internationalism, where that came from, and how we got back to isolationism, and where the balance is in between. So we. Uh, that was a that was a, a fun conversation. I hope you uh, I hope you enjoyed it. My voice is basically shot now because I've been talking for I think forty five minutes straight and somewhat quickly. So we are going to end the day. Well, not the day. The day is not over, but we're going to end the show with Chris Tomlin and Jesus coming up right after him. Actually, that song is too long. I need a shorter song. Mm, no, we'll just go with him and then I'll cut him out early. Right after Chris Tomlin, it'll be Pastor. Tice with Living in Liberty. Hope you have a great day. Be sure to join us tonight at church, 7 p.m. here at Liberty Baptist, 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard. Hope you and your family can join us. And don't forget to join us Easter Sunday. This Sunday is Easter, 8 o'clock, 9.30 or 11.15.